Well, friends, good evening again, and a warm welcome to McLean Presbyterian. Great to see you all here this evening. My name is James Forsyth, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with you again in God's Word this evening. If you want to take one of the Pew Bibles from the rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of Titus. Book of Titus, which you'll find on page 998. We're going to read verses 5 through 16 of this text and then spend a few moments reflecting upon them together. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Paul, writing to Titus, says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Tonight, we're going to dive in and have a family discussion that involves some some hard elements, some challenging elements. So before we do that, let's uh, first bow our heads and pray. Father, we know that every single syllable that has come from your lips to our ears, everything that you have ever said to us has been designed for our good. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight as we come to this section of your word, you would give us ears to hear the goodness and the life that is found in these words and the freedom it can bring to us as a church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were with us last week, I said that verses 5 through 9 of our text have, have two applications. I said they have a specific application and that they describe the qualifications for elders. And if you look down at the text above verse 5, you'll see that heading has been inserted there, qualifications for elders. These verses tell us what kind of men should be filling the office of elder. I also said, though, that these verses have a, a general application and that they describe the kind of life that all believers should be living. 
They give us a picture, a vision, if you like, of what it looks like to live like Christ, having been loved by Christ. And last week, we went on to focus upon that that general application, and we saw together how this vision of life can be uh, kind of summed up under three headings. First of all, the command to have beautiful homes. Now, this isn't talking about, you know, what what our physical homes look like. This is talking about the kind of people we are when, when no one else is looking, the kind of character references we would get from those who know us most. When you're in private, when the world isn't there to see, who does your spouse, who do your children, who do your roommates know you to really be? Who are you when no one else but them is looking? We're to be people who have this kind of life and integrity and character wherever we might find ourselves. Secondly, though, we said we're to have not just beautiful homes, but beautiful character. As we move out into the world, the Christian life is one that prioritizes substance over style. We're not to be a people who are all talk, who know the right answers, who know the things to say, but then don't really back that up with the kind of lives that we lead. No, we're to have beautiful character, a kind of integrity in the people that we are. And of course, we said that those two things, beautiful homes, beautiful character, that's only possible to the degree that we actually hold firm to the beautiful gospel. We can only live like Christ once we know how we have been loved by Christ. Well, this week, we want to circle back and look not at that general application, but now at the more specific application of qualifications for elders as we see the particular need to have elders in the church as described in verses 10 through 16. We're going to ask three questions in our time, who, what, and why? Who are these elders? What are they meant to do? And why is it so important? Look with me first then, starting in verse 5. Who are these elders? Look with me at verse 5 where Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders. You see the phrase there? To appoint elders. The Greek term for elder here is where we get our word Presbyterian. We're a Presbyterian church because we're a church that's led by a group of elders. Paul refers to these elders again in verse 7. Look at the very first uh, start of verse 7 as overseers. Now, both these terms, elder and overseer, they both refer to the same person. One is the title, elder is the title, uh, the other is the task to oversee. So, I'm, I'm a father who parents, and so elders are to oversee. Now, this term, uh, overseer, um, it, it's an okay translation, but there's, to me, always something a little foreboding about it that isn't intended in the original Greek. In the Greek, it does have this idea of watching over, but it also carries this idea of caring for or being a guardian of. So when you read overseer, when you think of elders, their job isn't to stand there with a clipboard looking serious, ready to catch you doing wrong, right? No, their job is to watch over, serve, care for, love, pastor the flock. That's, that's, their, that's their job, to guard over and care for the flock. And we're told in verse 5 that these elders are to be appointed, you see it there, in every time. In every time. So the biblical model is for every local church to be pastored by a group of elders who live lives of joyful obedience. For every local church to be pastored by a group of elders who live lives of joyful obedience. Now, a couple of things to note about these elders. First of all, we don't want to shy away from the fact that in the Bible, we're told that these elders are to be male. 
Elders are to be men. Now, this is often an unpopular teaching in, in our context and, and in our day. And if you're new with us, um, you should know um, we're not the kind of family that doesn't talk about uncomfortable things. Right? We're actually that kind of family. We like embrace the awkward things. So you know the super dysfunctional family that everyone's sitting around the table and just like not talking about the thing that everybody's thinking about? Well, we don't do that here, right? We weigh in as a family and talk about all these uncomfortable things. So uh, we don't do so every single week. Okay, this is quite a night for it to be your first night. Um, Hey, at least I'm not preaching on tithing. Okay, right, could be worse. (laughs) Um, But we're not not afraid to talk about these these challenging issues. Uh, We'll do so tonight, but if this is a thing that interests you or if you have a lot of questions, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by Kathy Keller. We bought 100 or so copies, and we've given them all away. So I'm going to buy another set of copies and not tell the morning services, right? We'll bring them just for evening service uh, next week, okay? Um, So you can pick up a free copy next week, or you can get on Amazon, buy it for seven bucks, and it'll probably be at your house by the time you get home tonight, right? Um, so I encourage you to, to, to look at this for, for more info. But let's, let's talk about this a little bit together just now. First of all, a brief summary of the rationale for why elders are to be men, and really three ideas. First of all, uh, just as we look at the Bible's teaching. When you look at the Bible's teaching, and you know as a church, this is what we do. We don't Uh, work under our own authority or what seems best to us, we come to the Bible and see how God has directed us to live. And when we come to the Bible's teaching, what we see is that whenever this office of elder, of pastor, is brought up, it's always addressed specifically to men. And so we even see that a little bit here in Titus, where the elders are referred to as husbands in verse 6, then referred to as he in verse 7, he in verse 8, he again in verse 9. And we see a similar thing in First Timothy chapter 3, which is another one of the key passages that addresses the qualifications for elders. After the Bible's teaching, we also have just the Bible's example. It's noteworthy that Jesus selected 12 men uh, who, along with Paul, were not only his first disciples, but the first pastors in the early church. Also in the Bible, we have no examples of of a woman serving as an elder in, in a local church. So after the Bible's teaching, the Bible's example, we also have just the testimony of church history. It's significant, again, that there are no known examples of women serving as elders in the first three centuries or so of the church. Now, important when we talk about this isn't just to talk about what, what we believe it means, but it's also to sort of um, highlight what we're not talking about. Most of the time, people don't actually have a problem with this teaching as much as some of the implications that might, might come along with it. And so it's important for us to say that we're not in any way saying, and the Bible is not in any way saying, that women shouldn't lead in the church, in the marketplace, in other areas of life. This is why we have a board of women integrated into every level of the church's decision-making. This is why, as a church, we have and have always had women in senior staff positions in our worship ministry, community ministry, missions ministry, um, you know, in our ministry support ministry. Um, we, We have women playing significant leadership roles. This passage isn't saying anything about that. Instead, it's focusing narrowly in on this question of who should be the pastors. Who are those people who are charged to care for the flock. It's simply a matter of roles within the church family, functions within the church body. So sometimes a helpful way to think about this is just to to think about how the Trinity works. Think about God himself. So we know that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, and that all three are God. All three are 
it's same in substance, they're equal in power and glory. Which, which member of the Trinity is more important than the other? Of course, there's no answer to that question. Or which one is more worthy of praise? Well, there's, there's no answer to that question. They're all equally deserving of, of honor and worship and praise. And yet, though they have this great equality, they play different roles. They have different functions. And so the Father sends the Son. And the Son comes to earth and dies on the cross. The Father doesn't, the Father doesn't do that. But then the Son sends the Holy Spirit to be our comforter. They each play unique roles. They each have unique functions within the body of Christ. And we can't really ever imagine that they argued about who got to do what. Yeah. Well, in the same way it is to be with us. Just as the Trinity's mutual honor and submission leads us into the beauty of, of their relationship, so in the church, all members have absolute equality of dignity, value, worth. We're all created the same. We're all redeemed the same. And yet God has decided to give different roles, different functions to different groups within the church. It's this division of labor where mutual honor and submission display the beauty of of our lives together. And the family flourishes, the body thrives when we all play our own part. Well, someone asks, okay, uh, I get that women are meant to be elders, but what, what role then do women have in the life of the church? And I think it's, first of all, first of all, I'd quick time out and say, remember, um, very, very few men are called to be elders. Uh, we have a church of over 2,000 members. We have roughly 20 elders. So a very small group of people actually called, called to be elders. So we could really ask, what's the role for all those people, men and women, who aren't elders? But even if we, if we narrow in on this question of, of the role of women, uh, the answer, according to the Bible, is, is a very, very full picture indeed. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Think about how Jesus co-labored with women. Think about how he honored their faith. Think about how he trusted women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. How he first commissioned women to go and be evangelists of this resurrection. The first commissioned believers in the risen Christ in the whole of scripture. Or think about, or just look at the ministry of Paul, who wrote this letter to Titus. Co-labors with a whole long list of, of women, Phoebe, Euodia, Syntyche, Junia, Tryphena, Persis, Priscilla. They've all got sweet names. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, Kathy Keller notes, Paul worked alongside women, deputized them to carry his letters, established house churches in their homes, and expected them to be full participants in the body of Christ. She then concludes, Women are encouraged to be active, verbal participants in the life of the church, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, and contributing in every way except in the office of elder. So God's design then is one of a beautiful partnership where we honor one another, where we value one another, where we love and serve one another so that as each part does its role, the body together thrives, the family together thrives. The arms aren't upset, they're not legs. The ears aren't upset, they're not eyes. They all value the other for what they bring to this thing. And as we live out God's design, 1 Corinthians 12, God has arranged the members of the body, each one as he chose. As we live out God's good design, we live out the kind of family life that he would have us live. Now, I do have a but. And here it is. Um, I recognize and understand that this is still a hard teaching for a lot, for a lot of people. And not just for women, just for, for, for a number of men too. 
And it's a hard teaching not just because of the cultural confusion we have over the differences between men and women. And <laughs> there is significant cultural confusion over the differences between men and women. Uh, I speak to most people today and they'll be, they'll be very awkward to talk to you about the, the differences that exist between male, male and female. Um, also, though, this, it's not just a hard teaching because of that, and it's, it's also not just a hard teaching because, you know, it, it's fair to say, right, we all have a hard time submitting our preferences to God's word, and all of us have things that grate in us a, a little bit. And of course we do. Like, what does it say about me if I'm surprised that God doesn't agree with me on everything? Yeah. Um, of course, there's going to be some things in God's word that in our time, in our place, we're, we're, we're going to have a hard time with. But again, that's not, that's not the only reason people would have a hard time with this. It's not just because of confusion. It's not just because of our preferences. Frankly, a lot of people, men and women in church, have a hard time with this teaching precisely because of the abuses of the church. Where we've seen men use scriptures like this, use teaching like this, twist it and pervert it in order to demean and marginalize women and end up treating them as second-class citizens in the family of faith. And wherever this has happened, we need to repent because we want to be a church under God's word and recognize the distinctions God has made, but we ought never make distinctions where God has not made them. That is bad. That is bad for us all. And so if you've experienced this, if you've experienced the church not uphold your value and dignity because of, because of your gender and not equip you for fullness of life in Christ because of your gender, if you've been demeaned or, or overlooked or made to feel like a second-class citizen in the church at large and especially here at McLean Presbyterian Church, I want you to know that I'm sorry and that I, I ask for forgiveness. because we've got to do better. Yes, we're a church under God's word. We're not going to shy away from those parts of the truth that maybe go against the grain of our culture. But this very same word that we claim to be under would call us to honor and equip all of our believers, irrespective of gender, for full, impactful lives for Christ. So, family, family discussion. Pull together, we wrestle with this. You may agree, you may not agree, we'll continue to wrestle with this, and together we'll endeavor to do better. We're not going to be that family that avoids these awkward issues. Follow up in your community groups and so on. I think it does us good to talk. Back, though, to the, the, the main point that the text is, is driving at this evening. We said the biblical model is for every church to be pastored by, by elders, but not just by elders. Secondly, uh, by elders who live lives of joyful obedience. So understand, being male does not qualify you to be an elder, right? The qualifications are listed in verses six through nine, right? You're not qualified by virtue of your gender. You're qualified as you exhibit the kind of characteristics that we looked at together last week. Having a beautiful home, having beautiful character, holding firm to the beautiful gospel, being a person of, of not just strength, but also great tenderness, having an integrity and, and Christ-likeness to you that is the fruit of how you've been loved by him. So, led by pastors, yes, but pastors who live lives of joyful obedience. So that's the answer to our first question. Who are these elders? Every local church, pastored by elders who live lives of joyful obedience. Let's look, though, at our second question. What do they do? 
what are, what are these elders for? Well, we started to answer that question with our discussion of the term overseer, that uh, elders are to shepherd, to pastor, to care for, to, to love the flock. But look down at verse 9, where Paul gives us a bit more detail uh, of things that are on their, their job description. You see it there, he says, the elders are to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are to give instruction in sound doctrine, also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are to promote and defend the truth of the gospel. And the need to do so in Crete, where Paul is writing to, was profound because uh, false teachers, corrupt leaders, had infiltrated the church. And in verses 10 through 16, Paul is going to bring a holy beatdown to these false leaders. He is going to, he's going to call them out and condemn them uh, for their morals, their motives, and their message. Look with me first at their morals, verse 10. Paul condemns them because they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They're insubordinate. This is the the same term Paul used back in verse 6 to describe the kind of children that would disqualify a man from serving as an elder. In other words, he's saying these false teachers, these corrupt leaders, they're like a group of wild, unruly, disobedient children. Not just that, though. He says they're empty talkers. They're, they're They're all talk. They stand up and they say whatever they want to say, but it, it's, all, it, it's all smoke. It's all dust and ashes. There's uh, hypocrites who say one thing and do another. Not just that, but they're deceivers. They're liars. They're manipulators. They use people for their own ends. Transitions us after his condemnation of, of their morals to the condemnation of their motives in verse 11. You see in verse 11 where it says, these false leaders, these corrupt leaders... Teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So their teaching has ulterior motives. They pretend that they care about the flock, but they're actually teaching them for their, for their own end and their own self, self-interest. They're the first TV preachers who will tell you whatever it is they think you need to hear in order to send them a check. Right? Be careful too. Um, you should also be concerned if your pastor always agrees with you. If your pastor always agrees with you, he's probably not preaching the word of God. Because <laughs> there's things in here that we're going to find hard. And so if they don't come up in the life of the church, then you should be concerned that, that you're, just, you're just being told what, what, you, what you want to hear. He attacks their, their morals, their motives, and then lastly, he condemns their message. Verse 14, they devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. This is the group that Paul referred to in verse 10 as the the circumcision party, a group of leaders who believe in Jesus, but say that alongside having faith in him, you must also do good works in order to be saved. So believe in Jesus, that's good, but make sure that you do a bunch of good things and don't do a bunch of bad things, and that's how you're going to be okay in the end. Grace and works changes everything, they, they say. And so in, 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 in believing that, they have, they've turned away from the very truth of the gospel. What are the elders to do? They're to, to pastor, to love and guard the flock. And then also they're to promote and defend the truth. And apparently, this is really important to Paul. Look at the language he uses. Verse 11, he says, false teachers must be silenced. Verse 13, he says, the elders must rebuke them sharply. That's, 
That's strong language. Why? It takes us to our third question. Why is this so important? The answer is very simply, because the gospel is at stake. The, the reason that the Lord saw fit to give a particular group of people the, the responsibility of loving the flock and promoting and defending the truth is because the very essence of the gospel is at stake. Paul's language isn't harsh. It's entirely appropriate for a man who loves his people because he knows that nothing is more serious than leading people away from Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. The stakes are literally eternal. And so in verse 11, Paul has said that the false teachers are upsetting whole families. Now, he's not referring to to biological families here. Remember, in the first century, churches met met in homes. So this is Paul's way of saying, um, these false teachers are, are upsetting entire churches, upsetting entire congregations, upsetting all the souls that exist within them. They're, they're all being led astray by the, the false teaching that goes against the very essence of the gospel. The gospel is at stake. Now, as true as it was in Crete 2,000 years ago, we know that it's, it's true today. If you were with us at the start of these, this series, we, we quoted a couple of stats from the Pew Research Center who found that seven out of 10 Americans do believe in heaven as a place where, quote, people who have led good lives will be rewarded. At the same time, six out of 10 Americans do believe in hell as a place for people who have, quote, led bad lives. So the message is really clear. Be a good person, you're gonna be all right. Be a bad person, you're screwed, right? Which we say, well, that's great for all the good people, <laughs> but what about us? What about people who have made mistakes? What about people who are broken? What about people who do have shame and failure in their lives and in their stories? What about every single person in this room? See, to move away from, from the pure gospel, the pure teaching of grace, is to move away and move into a subtler form of the folly that was found in Crete, <laughs> that Paul is addressing. Be a good person. Do some things, don't do others. And you'll be all right in the end. It sounds good, but it misses the very essence of the gospel. Tim Keller once said, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is not good advice. It's it's good news. Good advice tells you what you must do. Good news tells you that something's already been done. So remember in Luke chapter 2, when the angel appears to the shepherds. There were shepherds out in their field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were all greatly afraid. And then the angel said, Behold, fear not, for I bring you good advice (laughs) of great joy that will be for all the people. Stay in school. (laughs) Don't take drugs. Get eight hours of sleep. Floss. Um, remember, beds were not made for jumping on. And believe in yourself. Right? But the angel had a better word. Behold, fear not, for I bring you good news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Religion is good advice that tells you what to do. The gospel is good news that tells you what's already been done. 
that all we need is Christ. And the moment you add anything to him, you begin to move away from the precious gospel that tells us that grace changes everything, both for eternity and for life here today. So who are these elders? Well, every church pastored by elders who live lives of joyful obedience. What are they to do? Generally, they're to love and care for the flock. Specifically, they're to promote and defend the gospel. Why is this so important? Because the gospel is at stake. (laughs) Because the gospel is at stake. So, elders. If you're an elder in our church, um, this should be a really challenging section of scripture. And I, I just wonder as we wrestle with this, you know, have you thought about how easy is it to follow you? I think that's a really important question for all leaders to ask. If you, if you lead in any arena, it's worth asking that question. Am I easy to follow? Um, what kind of impact do you, what happens to the room when you walk into the room? Do, do, you, so, do you so love your people? Are you so caring for the flock? Are you showing such uh, strength and such tender concern for them that you are a joy to follow? That, that's the kind of elders we should be. The kind of elders who, according to the scriptures, are going to have to stand and give account for our leadership here in the church. Members, um, here's, my, here's my word to you. Elect, expect, and enjoy Excellent elders. <laughs> um, that, you know, it's, it's worth asking, you know, what's it like to follow me? It's also worth asking, what's it like to lead me? You know? Um, listen to a verse from, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It's talking about elders, and it says, um, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Leaders, be easy to follow. Members, be easy to lead. (laughs) Together, um, fix our eyes on Christ, who is our good news, not our good advice. As we do that together, this family of mutual honor, mutual submission, where we love each other and love each other well, and keeping our eyes on Christ will take us a long way to becoming a kind of beautiful church. Friends, this has been um, a one com- one-sided conversation. I've said a lot, you've not said much. Um, so let the conversation continue. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your scripture is timeless. And so every culture throughout history has found different parts of it hard to stomach and different parts of it easy to accept. And Lord, we certainly live at a time and place where some of the truths we've spoken about tonight are are challenging. Um, And Lord, we recognize that they're challenging for a wide variety of reasons, but significant among them is because of the, the very failures of the church. And so Lord, as as an elder in this church, we do, we do repent and ask for grace 
that you would uh, make us uh, a group of men who are aware of our brokenness and aware of our sin and aware of your love to us in this place and, and that that love would lead us to actually living as, as Christ lived so that we would be a group of elders that has um, such love for the flock that it is a joy uh, to follow us. Lord, I pray that you would um, be at work in our members too, that this would be a church where we're able to talk about these things, where we're able to embrace our conversations, where we can embrace the awkward things and work through them together as a family. And as we do all of this, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes on Christ, the one who is more than uh, good advice, but our Savior. It's in his name that we pray.